Well, we are strategically starting a new series. We've been in Genesis 1 through 11, which is the foundations of all that we see in this world. Now we're jumping into a gospel, uh, the gospel of Matthew in particular. And we're going to be in here for, for a little while. But Matthew's gospel is one of four gospel accounts. Now, when I use the word gospel, there's only one gospel. There's only one truth that yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that glorious good news of, of his sacrifice is accounted four times in our Bible. We're going to be in Matthew, but you see in the gospel of Mark, Mark is the shortest of the gospels. And Mark wrote, writes to a Roman audience. The Romans were always on the move. They moved quickly, and his book is very short, and it uses words like this, immediately, at once. It's action-packed, it's moving, and it wants to show Jesus, Mark does, as the suffering servant. It says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 8.45. We see that, and that's a big theme of that book. Well, then in Luke's Gospel, Luke's gospel is actually the longest of the gospels. Now, Matthew's 28 chapters, Luke's 24 chapters, but uh, Luke takes up more volume-wise. And Luke says that he wrote an orderly account. I mention that because when you read Luke's gospel, it gives an exact chronological order of the events of Jesus' life. The other gospels aren't too worried about that. They are focused on the theme that they want to display rather than exact order. And then we look at John's gospel. John's gospel is written to the world. Luke's gospel is written to the Greek audience. And John's gospel is written with a unique flavor showing Jesus as the Son of God who loved the world. Well, then we come to the gospel we're going to be in today. It's actually the first of the gospels. And it's strategically placed first because of its audience. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. He wrote to the Jew first, because Jesus came first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, and Matthew's gospel focuses on Jesus as the sovereign king. The Jewish people have been looking for a king, and Jesus is that king that they've been looking for. It quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. It's, as I mentioned, 28 chapters long, and as we study a gospel, realize this, they're not like the congregational letters. They're not written to a specific church saying, this is how you operate. It's showing us, revealing to us who Christ is. But at the same time, it's not a biography. Meaning the goal of the gospel, rotten narratives, are not to cover every detail of Jesus' life. It's to show us what we need and what we need to understand about our Lord and Savior in order to be redeemed, to trust Him, to follow Him, to live like Him. One of my mentors one time told me, he said, you need to master the life of the master. What he meant was, if you're going to dig into Scripture, and we should, and you're going to study God's Word, make sure that you really understand the life, the works, and the teachings of Jesus Christ. So I hope that's what we do, that we're able to master the life of the master as we walk through this. Again, I mentioned Matthew is not a chronologically ordered book. So as we go through Matthew, there will be things that are out of order. That's not a problem. Matthew is writing with some themes in mind. 
Now, I want to show you as we're starting some of the big questions he's seeking to answer. Matthew seeks to answer three primary questions. First, and this is in your notes, you can write it down. Who is the king? The Jewish people were wondering, there's a king coming. When is the king coming? Who's he going to be? And Matthew's looking to answer that question. I'm going to show you who your king is. Secondly, where is the kingdom? The Jewish people were anticipating a kingdom by a conquering king who would get rid of the Romans. And Jesus, uh, Matthew's saying, no, Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom. And one day he's going to return and establish that earthly kingdom. But that's not yet. And the third question he seeks to answer, what does kingdom living look like? What does it look like to live in this kingdom? So those are three questions that we'll come back to over and over again as we go throughout this book. Because those are big themes for Matthew. I want to give you an outline to the book. Realize anytime we give an outline, outlines are not divinely inspired. They're put together by man who's looking to help us understand God's word. So that's all this outline seeks to do. It's not a perfect outline, and it's certainly not an outline that I came up with. I borrow it from mentors and uh, pastors who have taught me. I've seen at least two of my pastoral mentors use this outline, so I pray that it'll be one that'll bless us and will help us think our way through the book of Matthew. Now I say that, God has blessed my life with his word, and I hope he has yours. I love the joy of hiding God's Word in my heart of Scripture memory. But one time I had a mentor say this to me. You need to learn to think your way through books of the Bible. And what he meant is, when we open a book of the Bible, you should be able to think, what is the content? What, what, what is the author addressing? What's going on here? So I want us to be able to think our way through the book of Matthew. So that I'm going to give you is very simple. Yet it's very powerful and hopefully very helpful. These are called the sweet peas of Matthew because every one of them begins with a P. And I think they're probably going to be on the screen in just a second. In Matthew 1 and 2, what we're going to look at today is the person of the king. Remember the focus is on the king and the kingdom. So we're going to see first is who is this person? If you're going to be king, you have to meet certain qualifications. In fact... There are well over 200 prophecies about the king, about the Messiah. Think about that, 200 prophecies, over. And Jesus meets every single one of them. You know, we'll often entrust our valuables, put them in a safe, or put them locked away in a drawer, and we'll entrust it to three numbers. If you've ever opened a lock, it's a three-lock combination you have to turn. But we will entrust that someone will not be able to figure out what those three numbers are and take our valuables. We trust it so hard to meet three numbers. Jesus, realize this, he hit the combination that's well over 200 numbers. He meets all those prophecies that we see in the Old Testament. He is the person of the king, and we're going to see that. In Matthew 3 and 4, we're going to see the presentation of the king. Anybody who becomes a king anywhere in the world, they have a presentation ceremony. And we're going to see that Jesus, he's going to be presented as the king of Israel and the king of all the world. Chapters 5 through 7, we see the preaching of the king. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, what he's going to say is this. You have the Old Testament law. Let me interpret it for you. 
So we're going to get the preaching of the king. Matthew 8 and 9, we get the power of the king. Ten miracles. Ten miracles that affirm that Jesus has power over sin. Because why does he need to perform miracles? Because this world is fallen. It's broken. And Jesus has power over sin. So his miracles were performed partially out of compassion, but also partially, perhaps more importantly, to say, I have power over sin. And if I have power over the sin that exists in this world, that makes this person struggle, I have power over all sin. So we see the power of the king. In chapter 10, we see the proclamation of the king. He sends out the 12 disciples to go preach repent. Chapter 11, the proclamation brings persecution. When you proclaim the gospel, you're always going to encounter persecution. If you're a person who's faithful to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, you will encounter persecution in this world. Twelve, we see there's a penalty. The nation of Israel rejects Jesus. Now, when I say the nation of Israel rejects Jesus, realize that's a small portion of their leadership. They had a leadership of 70, Sanhedrin. And they rejected Jesus, though not all of them. Nicodemus, he was part of the Sanhedrin. He accepted Jesus. The reality of the early church is it is predominantly Jewish. So many of the Jewish people received Jesus as Messiah, but the nation, their leadership, officially rejected him. And we see there's a penalty for that. Chapter 13, we see the program of the kingdom, that he has a plan. He has a plan in place. In chapters 14 through 20, we see the preparation of the 12 disciples by the king. Once the nation rejects Jesus, he does this. I'm focusing on 12. My entire plan for reaching the entirety of the world, I'm putting in these 12. And he prepares those 12 in chapters 14 through 20. Chapters 21 through 28, the end of the book, is called The Passion of the King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. In the midst of that, we get the prophecy of Jesus. He gives us prophecy in verses 24 and 25. Now, I'm going to come back to this outline ever so often to tether us in, to see where we are, but it's an outline hopefully that will help us as we journey through Matthew's gospel. Well, today, we're going to look at the start of Matthew's gospel, and it starts in a way that many would read over quickly, wouldn't pay much attention to, wouldn't view as that important. But Matthew views it as so important that he starts with it. It's a genealogy showing that Jesus has the legal claim to be the king. Genealogies are important, and they were especially important to the Jewish people. To many of you, genealogies are important. Many of our names reflect our family. Some names reflect your father and your grandfather. So genealogies are an important part of knowing who we are. And we've got to figure out, is Jesus qualified to be the Messiah? So that's where he starts. Is he humanly speaking, meaning the prophecies that allow him to be qualified to be the Messiah? So we're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. If you would please... Stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to hear from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Hear the word of our Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, 
by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetel. Shetel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abijah, Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of uh, Ikim. Ikim, the father of Elehud, Elehud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Uh, God, we recognize this is your word. And your word declares that the grass withers and the glories and uh, all man's glory fades. But your word stands forever. And Lord, may this be the word that is preached to us here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was a big mix of names. There's probably a few that you hear and you go, oh, I know that name. But know this, each of these names mentioned in this genealogy has a story. The majority of these names, we can look up their story in the Old Testament and see what God was doing in and through them. But there's four things I want to show us today that are about the lineage of Jesus, about this genealogy. First, I want you to see that it's legal this genealogy legally establishes Jesus as the king. Secondly, it's expansive. Third, it's merciful. And fourth, it's worldwide. First, we see this is legal. The most important connection that Messiah must have is to King David. And that's where it starts. It actually mentions David before Abraham, even though Abraham came before David, because the connection to David is vital. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, I'm going to highlight verse 13 and 16. Listen to what's said. This is God speaking to David. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. First one, he's speaking about Solomon will build the house for God. 
Second time, David, someone from your line will set on the throne forever. And there's three things mentioned both in verse 13 and 16. Kingdom, throne, and house. And when we go to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, this is speaking of Jesus. It says, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus, kingdom, throne, house. It's important. Legally, he has to come from David's lineage, and that's established here. He also comes from Abraham, meaning he's a Hebrew. Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant, it had been established that Abraham would be a blessing to all the world. And that comes through Christ. So we see it's a legal, a legal genealogy. Second, it's expansive. If you were to put together a genealogy in this day and time when this is written, you would typically only include the names of men. Yet Jesus' genealogy includes five women, the fifth being Mary. And these women are included for a very specific reason. You see, Jesus, in a culture that devalued women, Jesus came and lifted women up. said there's equality, but yet there's uniqueness. He celebrated those things. So we see here in verse 3, the first mentioning of a woman. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, but Tamar... Now, Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was one of the 12 sons. And when we read the story of Judah, it's the last, uh, in the last 14 chapters of Genesis, typically we focus on Joseph. But Judah was one of the brothers. He was the brother who initiated and put the plan together to sell Joseph into slavery and what would be certain death. Judah is a Hebrew name. If you were to take the Greek equivalent of that name Judah, it would be Judas. And we see just like Joseph, the favored son of the father, is sold into slavery by a boy named Judah. Jesus, the favored son of God the Father, is sold into certain death by a boy named Judas. And Jesus, we sang about it a minute ago. We didn't sing about the lion of Joseph. We sang about the lion of Judah. Judah, when you look at the 12 tribes and you read their story, Judah's story is the most twisted. It's a story that you would look at and go, he is a bad, bad person. He's wicked. And yet God redeems him. Judah sells his brother into slavery, thinking his father will embrace him. Instead, Jacob rejects him, and he runs and lives with the Canaanites. Marries a Canaanite woman. He has three boys, three Canaanite boys. The first one marries a woman named Tamar. But because this boy is so godless, he dies. The second son, according to the custom, marries Tamar. But because that boy is so wicked... He dies. Judah looks and says, I don't know if I'm going to let my third son marry Tamar because everybody that marries her dies. So he sends Tamar away. When Judah's wife dies, 
This is the type of man Judah is. He's mourning for his wife. This is Genesis 38. You can read it. It's one of those chapters you read and you go, does my Bible still say holy on it? Because it is one of those chapters you read and you go, this is a gritty story. But God is very real about the sins of his people. And Judah in his mourning is walking to the temple and he sees a prostitute. And he has relations with that prostitute. And that prostitute turns out to be his daughter-in-law named Tamar. And when he finds out Tamar is expecting, he says, burn her to death. And then she shows him his belt and his staff and says, this is the man who did it. And he realizes it's him. See, Judah's story is a very gritty, sin-filled story. And this woman, Tamar, who played the part of a prostitute, she is Jesus Christ's great, 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 great grandmother. Jesus is in the business of taking our sin and redeeming it. Jesus forgives us of our sin. And throughout his lineage, it's filled with people that we look and we go, how can they be in the family of Jesus? Because that's who Jesus came to die for. Look down at the, uh, a few generations later. There's a guy named Salmon. He's the father of Boaz by Rahab. When I say this sentence, can you finish it? Rahab the prostitute. That's what she's known as. That's her identity in Scripture. Rahab the prostitute. She was a Canaanite prostitute. And the entire city of Jericho was destroyed, yet she was the only one to live in Jericho. And she marries a man named Salmon. She becomes a Jewish person. Many believe that Salmon was one of the, 12, one of the two spies that went into uh, Jericho. We don't know that for sure. But this woman, who perhaps the most famous attribute of her is her sexual morality, is Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother. And then we see another, we see uh, Obed, um, or Boaz, he marries Ruth. Ruth, she was a widow who was from the Moabite people. She's called Ruth the Moabite. And the Moabite people were known for their immorality, their sexual immorality, to the point that they were not allowed to enter the temple. And then we see a fourth woman, Scripture doesn't even mention her name here. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name. David took another man's wife and had that man killed. David, the, the king from whom Messiah would come, the, the man who's called, uh, says to have a heart after God, his sins were great. See, Jesus... Lineage is expansive in that it includes women, but it's also incredibly merciful. Four of these women, either their people or their life, was known for their sexual immorality. And Jesus embraces that because his grace is great. His mercy is great. And so often, we in the church we can be quick to judge, slow to forgive, slow to extend the grace 
that God has extended to us. Let me tell you, when you're slow to extend grace to people, it's more of a a statement about you. Because here's what it's saying about you. I don't realize how bad my sin is. And I don't realize how much grace I've been forgiven in Christ. You see, your sin separates you from God. All of our sin is wretched, destructive. And God has forgiven all who trust in Christ. That's why Jesus' story, when we look at it, his family tree is filled with people that you go, what, they did what? What happened? And I want you to know that our sin has very real consequence here on earth. I'm not downplaying that. If I go and I fall into sin, I fall into a lifestyle of immorality, I would be disqualified from being your pastor, and rightfully so. Our elders and in positions of leadership, there are certain qualifications that, that God calls us people to uphold and stand to. So the consequence of sin here on earth is very real, but realize this. God's grace is powerful. It forgives the sinner. And I want to speak in particular to both men and women here. I think oftentimes our cultures are very harsh on the sexual immorality of women. In no way is what I'm saying placing a license on immorality. It's recognizing that it runs throughout our culture and it's many people's story. And often we are slow to extend grace and quick to extend judgment. To some of the women here today, if you take seriously discipleship, you are going to encounter other women who've experienced abuse, hurt, pain, in the areas of sexual morality. They felt it. And the question is, what are you going to say to them? Are you going to bring judgment? Or will you look at Jesus' family tree and go, let me show you where Jesus comes from. Jesus comes from a family tree with a lot of broken people in it. And he came to reconcile you to God. His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient even for your sin. Church, may we be filled with grace. May we be quick to extend grace. Now, don't hear me saying don't take sin seriously. And don't hear me saying sin doesn't have consequence. It does. But what I am saying is we need to be gracious and love and walk with those who are forgiven in Christ and show them that Christ will forgive their sin. And that's what we see throughout Jesus' lineage, that that these people are forgiven. And it's, it's not just the women. I highlight the women because that's a unique thing in his lineage. So don't hear me just picking on that. But you see these men, a man named Manasseh. He ruled for 51 years and was the worst king of Israel. We see a man named Jeconiah. He was so evil that they said no, uh, no son of Manasseh could ever sit on the throne. So this is a Jesus family tree. It's not a family tree that you look at and go, all oh, those people were so nice. They were so good. They had it together. No, you look and you go, this is really our Messiah's family? His family is full of brokenness, but that's who he came to redeem and save was broken, fallen humanity to save and redeem us and bring us back to God the Father. 
We also see that Jesus' lineage is worldwide. All those women I mentioned, Rahab, she was a Canaanite. Tamar was a Canaanite. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Ruth was a Moabite. Jesus has within his lineage, it's not filled with people who were ethnically Jewish. It also has Gentiles in it because he came to die not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. So in his family tree, we see who he came to save. Broken, sinful men. Broken, sinful women. All the nations, all the people. That's who he came for. And we see down here in verse 16, it says, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now get this. This family tree is the family tree of Joseph, not Mary. This is Joseph's family tree. And Jesus does not biologically come from Joseph. Joseph is his adopted father. Jesus grew up with an adopted father who fully brought him in, gave him full rights. And Jesus' legal claim to the throne comes from his father, Joseph. Now, Jesus' biological claim to the throne comes from his mother, Mary. If you want Mary's lineage, you go to the Gospel of Luke, and it records Mary's family tree. And get this, both Joseph and Mary both come from King David. Now, they trace it through different people. But you can watch their family tree, and they both go back to David. So on both sides of his family, legally with his father Joseph, biologically with his mother Mary, they both go back to King David. He has full right to be the Messiah. He fulfills all the prophecies. So many more we could go through. We see here that it says there's 14 generations. It says that three times. Know that this genealogy that there's actually more than 14 generations including here. It skips some. That's not a problem in, in, in Jewish literature and Jewish writings. But the number 14, every word for the Jewish people had a number assigned to it. And the number 14, that was the number of David. This lineage once makes it clear. Jesus goes back to King David who will sit on the throne forever. And again, you want to read a story and go, how is that man, the man declared to have a heart after God? David committed adultery and murdered. And yet, he has a heart for God because when he sees his sin, he turns from it and runs back to God. That's what the Christian does. When you see your sin, you turn from it and run back to God. Now, David, get this, very real consequence for his sin in this world. But he was forgiven. Jesus came to die for those who will trust in him through repentance. And it's my hope and prayer that as we've looked at this lineage, that you'd see the grace of God. You'd see the sovereignty of God. He's over all this. That you'd see that God forgives the sinners through his grace. He came to die for sinners. That's why he came. Are you quick to extend mercy and grace while yet upholding the truth? Or are you quick to judgment? Are you quick to count people based on their sin and what they've done wrong?
Okay, when we do that, we often don't see our own brokenness and our own need for a Savior. I pray that we would be a people of great grace, church. That we uphold the truth of God's Word. We're not looking to water it down. But that we extend grace to the hurting, broken sinner and calling them to repentance in Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. It's true. I thank you that you came to die for sinners. I thank you that in your family tree, we see men, we see women, who, Lord, they had great sin in their life. Yet when they saw their sin, they returned to you. They trusted in you. May we be like that. Lord, as we encounter people who are struggling with sin, may we realize that we still struggle. And may we be quick to point them to repentance in Jesus Christ. Lord, we know there's consequences here on this side of eternity for our sin. But we want to say thank you. Thank you that we are, we are forgiven for those who've trusted in Christ. The ultimate consequence of our sin is removed. That we will no longer experience separation from God the Father, but that we have unity and peace with God the Father through the Son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We continue to pray over this nation, Ethiopia. Pray that you would bring healing and peace. We cry out to you for that. And Lord, we thank you that the Prince of Peace came to the world to save sinners such as us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.